0: Oh, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have, as we turn to this letter, a most wonderful account of what the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, has left us of the whole counsel in many respects of God Is a marvelous book to study. I would encourage you to do it. It contains all the essential truths and doctrines that God would have us, the church, to know. It begins at the beginning, and this letter is not simply to the Jewish people and the churches that would have been called out at that time consisting of Jews, but it was Jew and Gentile because you know, as you read it, children here know that. 2 Paul concludes after his first couple of chapters both Jew and Gentile stand guilty before God there is none no one righteous before God and he continues on this theme of righteousness A righteousness that is required of an offended God. A God righteousness. A righteousness that transformed at the time of the Reformation Martin Luther's heart as he understood finally this truth. There is a righteousness, it's his, and his son accomplished it in my behalf. And by faith, he could come to rest. Not in crawling up the stairs on his knees or doing any host of works he could perform. But in the righteousness of Christ, he was justified as Abraham was. As Paul writes to the church. To us. And this grace Paul mentions and this righteousness that is available to any who will receive it is so broad, so inclusive, so forgiving of the greatest of sinners that Paul almost in Romans 6 has to make sure he's rightly understood so that there were not be those who would say, well, if this grace is so abundant and this righteousness has been accomplished, well, let's go on and sin that grace may abound. Oh, God forbid, Paul would say, don't you even think such a thing? The grace is superabounding. But don't continue in sin because you've been transformed. You're no longer who you once were once you have come to Christ by faith. You are now called to live a life following Christ. Romans 7. A battle has begun. Flesh, sinful flesh, and spirit. And this battle is sometimes disconcerting, it's difficult, confusing. But he will not leave. Paul does not leave the believer in despair. "O wretched man, end of verse seven, that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death?" You know that language? You're a wretched person before God. But I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he enters into this doxological chapter of Romans 8 when he mentions the marvelous work of the Spirit of God. In his work in the hearts of people. Oh, he's mentioned it before when he is... Uh, highlighted the reality of the peace of God that is shed abroad in the heart, the love of God that has come to to be known by the Spirit of Christ. But here he is accentuating this broader work of the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit now that we have been adopted into the family of God. We are the sons of God. It does not yet appear. John will later say, what we shall be, but this we know. Paul will say here as well, That this spirit of Christ who abides in us is one who, with groans unutterable, is crying, Abba, Father, and we therefore do not have a spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but this spirit of adoption. That means, dear friends, if you are in Christ by faith, there is nothing. Absolutely nothing that can hinder your reception into glory. And he is affirming that reality here And the verse I want to talk and consider tonight from verse 28. So if you open your Bibles, you can follow along. Verse 28 of Romans 8. You've heard this verse, I am sure, before. But do we have a right understanding of it? Do we draw and suck comfort and peace from it? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And my theme this evening, God Helping, is God our Father acts for our good with three thoughts. First of all, For whom is this true? Who does this promise, because it's a certain promise, does this pertain? Everyone? Certain people? Who are they? That's what we want to look at in our first thought, to whom this is true. Secondly, to what degree is it true? How broad, how expansive, how inclusive is this all things that Paul is saying here in our text? And then lastly, we want to see the certainty of this truth. We know. That's what Paul said. Well, first of all, the title is God Our Father Works for Our Good. Well, where does that come from? In our text, it simply says God. And we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God. Well, if you follow through into the next verse, the God who Paul is referring to is none other than the Father. Because continue, it says, for whom he did for no." He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. God is working, the Father is working to gather all things for the good. That means to the conformity of His Son. In the lives of all those, two things He sets before us here, who love Him and are the called according to his purpose. You know, there are many today who talk about, even unbelievers, who when they're experiencing a couple of days of trial and difficulty, they'll say to you, these things can't last forever. Murphy's rule says, you know, whatever it says. Humanistic ideas about can't get worse than what it is, That's not what Paul is saying in this text. It's interesting. I read a couple of blogs on this passage just to hear what others are saying in the blogosphere. And there was one who who said this I found rather interesting. He said, stop using this verse on greeting cards and get well cards. Romans 8, 28 does not mean that losing your job or getting cancer is somehow for your good. He said the text should say instead in all things God works for the good of those who love him. God is fighting for you. That's very different than what Paul is saying in this text. If all we have is some cosmic entity who maybe is fighting for us but we don't know a certainty of what value is this. if the one who is only fighting for us but isn't in control of all things, even directing all things in our life, of what confidence do we have, he can bring it about for good. We'll never be sure. In other words, if our God is not big enough to have prevented the cancer or the accident or the financial demise that we experience, then he's not big enough to help us through it either. But that's not what Paul is saying in our text. He is saying this promise is certain and sure and inclusive. But for whom? For whom is Paul saying all things will work together for good? Is it for everyone in this world? For the unbeliever too? The unconverted person? Well, the rest of Scripture would tell us that can't be true. It tells us that those who are outside of Christ, those who have not yet come by faith to Jesus, are under God's wrath. And being under God's wrath, I can't imagine that all things are working together for good because should that person remain unrepented, it will end in eternal perdition. That's not good. We're under the curse. Yes, we can expand on this in the rest of Scripture and say those who are under the bond of election, they indeed must have all things work together for that good of their conversion, but that's not what we're speaking about in this text right now. If we're unbelieving, the Scripture is saying to us, you're under his wrath. So who does this text pertain to? Does it speak to the unbeliever? Indeed it does. If there is anyone here tonight who has not come to faith in Christ, there is no other place in all the world, in all of your life, that you will be able to rest with confidence and hope and peace outside of knowing what this text means. And it means also it's possible. That's the whole message of the book of Romans to us. It's possible also for the unbeliever. The hearing of this promise tonight should rather than distract you and push you away, it should ought to be like arms to embrace you to come and welcome to Jesus Christ. But maybe someone still says, well, who is this promise then for? Well, Paul tells us clearly in two marks here. He says, we know... All things work together for good to one, them that love God, and secondly, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Do you love God? Even the children here might say yes, because we know. That's our duty. That's why we were created. But if we're honest, every sin we commit is an indication of exactly the contrary. Love God. That's what Paul says. There are terms used in the scriptures to describe Those who love God, they're called the church, they're called the saints in the New Testament, God-fearers, Christians, believers, they're called his beloved, they're called sheep, the bride of Christ. All these terms are designated to describe this group of people that Paul is here referring to. But perhaps the most lowest common denominator of it all. That's the question that comes to you tonight: Do we love God? Have we come to understand that our sin is a testimony that we don't really love God, that we are haters of God by nature, and that when His Spirit opens our eyes in the gospel to understand that, we are drawn to God because of His love. Because if you don't believe God is love, why would you ever go to Him? Why would any sinner ever flee to a God who is capricious, who is only out to destroy you? Maybe as a last resort. But that's not exactly how God presents himself. He is a God of justice, infinite justice and holiness and wrath, indeed, but He is a God who is love. And it's that, Calvin says, which draws our heart to Him. Because if we did not believe he was benevolent and gracious to returning sinners, why would we ever come? And so what Paul is saying here is really the flip side of has already happened in the hearts of those who love God. They have come to know the love of God in Jesus Christ. And this isn't only true in the New Testament. It's also true in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7 9 we read know therefore the Lord thy God he is God the faithful God that keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah 1 he prays I beseech thee O Lord God of heaven the great and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. What about the psalmist? The expression of the heart Psalm 97, 10, and 116, verse 1. You that love the Lord hate evil. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplication. Do you love the Lord? That's a fundamental question to find entrance into what the promise of our text is saying. Paul, when he quotes Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, says... Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, If any man love God, the same is known of him. It shouldn't be any surprise. Do you love the church? Do you love the people of God? Do you love those that have been begotten of God, as the Apostle John says? We may know then, as a self-reflection upon that love we have to them who love God, that we too may know that we are begotten of God. And Paul is mentioned here in this letter already in chapter 5, verse 5. The love of God has been shed into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Who has been given to us? This is for whom this promise we will see pertains. I can well imagine there may be someone here who, hearing this, stumbles over maybe the degree. Or maybe the conflict that is pictured in Romans 7. If I loved God, why do I still commit sin? Well, the Bible does also speak about love that is waxing cold, growing dim. A love that was said to be First in Revelation, but left behind. It's possible that in our hearts too, we can leave this first love, but His call is nevertheless return, repent, and do the first works. Come to Him who has shed abroad this love in your heart the first time, and by renewal, bend the knee to Him, worship Him, receive Him as you did at the first. And when we fall into grievous sin or live in sin, maybe not widely known by others, but in our own hearts we know, we deny him. I think of the Apostle Peter. You remember he at the last meal was standing up as he usually did. Remember, children, he's always the first one who was speaking among the disciples. And and when Jesus is saying to the disciples, tonight, all of you are going to be offended because of me. And it's Peter who stands and he says, no, not me. I will even die for you. And then when they get in the garden, yes, he defends and pulls out his sword for a moment, but then he runs like the rest. And after that, you remember, he comes into the garden, the hall of the high priest and Caiaphas, and he's warming his hands by the fire, and a little maid asks him, you were one that was with Jesus. I remember. And with cursing, he denies. He knows him. Whose love is mentioned there? Jesus looks at him. And, love. and Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. Where's his love? He couldn't find it in himself. He denied the master. But Jesus perseveres. He does with us too. And after his resurrection, whatever he spoke to Peter and the time when they met alone, we don't know. But then when he meets with Peter with the rest of the disciples on the seashore what is the question that Jesus asks Peter do you love me that's the question I ask you tonight do you love God and will you say with Peter Lord you know everything in spite of who I am or what I do or what I think the root, core of my being. I love you. Paul says, then this truth you may lay hold upon with confidence. Do you love what God loves? Are you grieved by what grieves God? Do you seek communion and fellowship and greater knowledge and understanding of Him to his son Jesus Christ. James says in chapter 1:12: Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Well, the second thing Paul mentions here to give an indication as to who may lay hold upon this promise. He says here, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to unpack something of what he is saying in verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, this foreknowledge is eternal predestination. He also predestinated them to be conformed to the image of his Son. Two things here I want us to draw our attention to. The first is this. Love originated in the heart of God. In his choosing of people, sinners, to be rescued and redeemed by his son. It's an eternal love that is unchangeable, unshakable. He who has begun a good work in you will continue it till the day of Christ Jesus. But secondly, not only is the eternal faithful covenant God here displayed for us in the newness of life in calling out of darkness to light, but second of all, what we see here is the purpose of God in calling people out of death to life is to transform them most of the time I I fell into this category We, we think about salvation and conversion about this initial time this initial conversion we're either lost or we're saved we're either born again or we're not and that's all we think about And so people are consumed with this idea when they look in the mirror, it's, am I born again or am I not? It's a good question. An essential one to establish and be settled upon. But that's not all He saves us to. His calling and His purpose is mentioned here. He saves people to transform them. To change them. Here and now. Through the way of life. Through the way of suffering and trial. And difficulty and joys and tribulations. For whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the purpose. This is the purpose why, by, why Paul can say all things will work together for this end. For this good. And this calling of God that he mentions here that we're looking at called according to his purpose is without repentance. Which means when God calls he calls powerfully, he calls effectually we come. It's a command. It's not an invitation simply to take or leave. The free offer of the gospel, I was talking uh, to someone and the other day, and he was saying, oh, the free offer, what do you mean by that? You take it or leave it? No, the free offer is God's gracious invitation to all people who hear the gospel to come. But it's not a take or leave proposition. It's a command, repent and believe. That's the call. And Paul affirms this in 2 Timothy 1.9. He said, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose in grace, which was given us in Christ before the world Began. That's what Paul is working out in this chapter. It is the spirit of Christ. Of God. That is working. That is transforming the lives of his children. So that they cry Abba Father. And the spirit makes intercession with groanings unutterable. That we don't even know to ask for what we ought. And it's this spirit. He was also Speaking to us through this word that all things will and are and shall work for good. This is the foundation, the unshakable foundation rooted in the heart of God from all eternity. There is so much beauty and glory in this text that the unbeliever who looks at it should be amazed and humbled and submit to its truth before God. This whole passage is a demonstration of the love of God. We need to proceed to our second thought, which is... The degree. I leave you with the question in our first thought, do you know that this promise pertains to you? Do you love God? Have you been called? If so, then we enter into this promise itself in earnest. To what degree is this true? How much? That car that pulled out in front of you almost caused an accident. That argument you had with your spouse, with your dad, with your mom, that breakup of a girlfriend, that whatever may be happening in your life that has transpired, is that included in all things? Or is it, as some commentators try to say, well, in the main, and in the general flow of things, it will all kind of work out somehow. Is that what Paul is saying? Well, Jesus himself told us that even the very hairs of your head are numbered. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a bit older and in the morning waking up with my pillow, there's a few hairs laying there. Is that what Jesus means? Every hair is numbered? Yes, it does, among many other things. It's a figure of speech in a way, but is Paul using here a figure of speech? What does he mean? All things work together for good. Well, let me show you from a few other places where this same language, word, is used. And you draw your conclusion. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, Jesus said, All things are delivered to me of my Father. Can you conceive of anything? Anything in the whole created world and universe that is not under the dominion and authority of Christ. He's sitting on the throne. His father gave him that authority. And so he says, all things are delivered unto me. Is there anything, any event that is transpiring that is outside of his control? We'll go back to John chapter 1 when he begins at the beginning and says, All things were made by him, the Word. There is nothing that is that wasn't made by him. So, what isn't under his control? All things are. And, and, and in this chapter as well, Paul's going to go on and explain even more. Verse uh, 32 of this chapter, he freely gives us all things. Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, he has put all things under his feet. All things have been subdued. And Philippians 3, Paul says, verse 21, he's able to subdue all things to himself. Is there anything then, friend, As you look in your life, as you experience difficulty, trial that is not under all things. There's nothing. And it's the eye of faith that lays hold upon this text and says that means this trial, this temptation, this difficulty, whatever it may be, is all things. Even sin. Even sin. Children, you know, many times in the scriptures, God has given us this by demonstration, powerfully. I think of Joseph, hated by his brothers, given dreams, thrown in a pit, thankfully was not killed. But sold to slave traders and sold into Egypt and came into Potiphar's house, then into the prison, forgotten by uh, the butler and the baker. What was God doing? Are these all things? Uh, yes, it were. They were. He was shaping Joseph, he was molding Joseph to be the man. He called him to be. Imagine if Joseph perhaps had not experienced these challenges and trials and had to learn what he will later say to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Imagine your brothers did that to you and they were standing before you and all authority had been given to you in the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was transformed. All these things were working together for good, for the glory of God, for the salvation of his people and his church of the Old Testament. Even sin, our own sin, let alone sins of others against us. It doesn't mean we go on and sin that grace may abound, no. But I give you the example of David. Grievous sin. Sin with Bathsheba. Great darkness brought into his heart and his soul. But what's the good? Jesus himself descends from the line of this union. All things work together for good. What is good? You and I have an idea in our own mind about what's good. Makes us feel happy. Makes us have pleasure and joy. We think, that's good. But is this the good that the Apostle Paul has in mind? What's good for our flesh and pleasing to ourselves? That we would never experience sorrow and trouble and suffering? Not at all. The New Testament church knew very much the other way. It's through suffering that God is bringing us forth. How will we walk in the footsteps of Christ who has gone before us as our Lord and Master? He who learned through his suffering is calling his people who follow him to learn through their suffering to trust him as well. Paul is heading towards this very conclusion that all things are going to work together for good. Let me to give you a personal example. So you can maybe think about ways in which this applies to you. I remember some years ago, Now my, my wife is worth her weight in gold. She's a wonderful woman. But I'd been working on my computer, this was before there were automatic saves in Word and so on, and I was Saturday afternoon, typing on my sermon, nearly completed, and I got a phone call that someone needed me, so I left immediately. and came back home expecting to sit down, finish up the sermon that was going so well, only to come to a blank screen Well, turn on the computer and start looking. Where is it? It wasn't saved to call the I.T. guy from church, where it's supposed to save automatically. Where is this? Call my wife into my study. Do you know what happened? We were you on my computer? We only had one computer then. Yeah, I was working on some library stuff for school, and it said something about, "Do you want to save?" And I said, "No. What goes on inside? How could you do that? Are you so. You fill in the blank. But the sermon was so good. So I thought. Then the Lord began to show me what was in my heart my anger. Was he in control of this situation? Does he know it was lost? He's changing me. Is he changing you? Conforming you to the image of his son. That's good. That's what he has in mind. That's what his intention is with every difficulty and every affliction he brings in your path, especially if you're going astray. Return to me. Come to me. And if you're walking in his way, he may even allow some affliction and trial to come to shape you and mold you more, to cling to him more, to trust him more, to love him more. All things, not One accepted will work for good. It does not mean that in the moment or even in a period of time when God brings suffering or trials or permits sin to enter into our lives, that it feels good or experiences good. The question is, do we lay hold upon this promise looking to him to bring about that good? At times we're given a glimpse of this truth. We rest in it. What's Paul doing in this chapter? It's a reason I read the previous verses, although they're lengthy. Go back and read them again this week as you reflect on this. The whole creation was subject to vanity. It groans. You look at the world around us and it's groaning. It's broken. It's needing to be redeemed and fixed and made new. It's coming. It's coming. Sooner than we think. But that's not only true for this creation that God has, because of our sin, subjected to corruption. It's true for us in our very bodies, in our flesh. Though we have been redeemed, if we are those who love God, the called according to His purpose, we are still groaning within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit of our bodies, when never anymore and any longer will we question and doubt that all things are working together for good. I ask you to look back in your life in the most difficult of circumstances when you knew the Lord and was it not often in those times that he was there, his word was there or people of God came alongside and prayed with you and mentioned his comfort and brought you words of peace. You could not but cling to him. It's what he designed in the trouble and affliction that you would cling to him and you would trust in him that you would not rely on your own way out, on your own fixing of the problem, but on him. And you begin to recognize that through the trouble, instead of you solving the problem, he solved the problem and you are humbled. You have no pride nothing to say for yourself and so trials and tribulations and temptations cause us to be more heavenly minded more convicted of this truth that my father is directing all things in my life to this glorious purpose to change me into the likeness of his son When you are in trial, when I am in trial, the question is not whether or not you can see the good that God is doing or perhaps going to bring out of this trial. Or even whether you can see how it's going to happen. But the question for us tonight is, in light of this text, in the trial, can you say, He is good. I know, I know, I know that all these things will work together for good. That brings us to the last consideration from this passage, the confidence of the Apostle Paul. For we know. There's no hesitancy. There's no maybe. And it's not even the Apostle Paul who has experienced so much trial and tribulation and God brought him through it all that he says, and I know. But he says, and we know. Because he's talked to the people of God at Rome. He's talked to the people at Corinth. He's talked to the saints of God. And we know. How we ought not then, as we read at the end of Malachi, speak together about these things to stir up our confidence in the truth and the reality that we can say as well, we know. Paul's not ashamed to confess this truth that everything will work together for good. He's not ashamed to say this in the face of what seems to be impossible. Reality? My wife, as you know, has a lot of difficulties and suffering with her physical being and has this text is transformed in her life. But there were some who had not yet come to Christ in the former congregation who would become angry in their heart. Why do you need to suffer all of this? Why is God bringing that in your life? Only to have her witness of God's goodness. Are you witnessing in your trial and your affliction to each other, to one another, in your families, in the church of what God is doing? And so you can say with confidence, and we know. This is Paul's wonder. I mean, this whole chapter is a wonder that he's speaking, but here in particular, we could say, he says, We know that everything is working together for good. Why do we fear? What do we have that could be against us? Notice what he goes on to say. What should we say then? All these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? Why can he say that? Because he says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. If God didn't withhold his own dear, beloved son, but for our sakes, when we were dead in trespasses and sin, he gave him over to death, how will he then, after he saved us and rescued us, withhold anything that will serve our good? The answer is he's not going to. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, is risen again, even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Oh, he called us in our passage to consider, do you love God? But here he's reminding us in himself again, who will separate us from his love? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? And he could go on and on. No, he says, for thy sake we are killed all the day long and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. You're going to suffer. You're going to be brought to slaughter as I was. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or principalities, powers or things present or things to come, height nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is saving his people for a purpose to change them and transform them to see Christ in them. And it's done. It's finished. It's complete. It's as if God already is seeing it transpire. How do I say that? Well, look with me at verse thirty. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Them who he called, it's happened. Them he also justified. It's happened. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's happened. It's an unbroken chain from beginning to end. He will never leave his child, sink below the waves to drown. But rescue them and embrace them in his love and bring them all the way to glory. Because all things we know Work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Our merciful and gracious God, we have stammered something, sought to seek to lay before our hearts the glorious truth that the Apostle Paul was so taken in with. That we too may be taken in with this truth and reality and live with lightened steps as we follow the Master who goes before us, that we may do so with joy. Grant us, Lord, to see every trial, every affliction, every sin done against us, and even when we fall and falter ourselves, that thou wilt turn it for good. Transform us, Lord, more and more. Till we shall see him as he is, And be transformed into his likeness. Hasten the day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.